Hey guys, Brock Cannon here. Super stoked to introduce this podcast tonight. In fact, this is episode number 30, which is, I don't know, super iconic, I suppose. <laughs> means we've been going for a little while. And I had the pleasure of interviewing local Santa Barbara runner, Chris Brown. Now, I might call him a local, but he's internationally known as a world-class trail runner, ultra runner, and just all-around cool guy. He owns a restaurant called Cubaneo, which is one of my favorites here in Santa Barbara. So in this episode, we talk about everything from food, his passion, how he got into it. And this is probably, actually not probably, this is absolutely the longest podcast we've recorded to date. We went almost two hours because we, because we had so much to talk about. We got into some beers, we had some laughs, and we really got into just some amazing parallels between ultra running and life and what that means. So take some notes, enjoy this episode. You're going to probably laugh a little bit because we got a little bit tipsy towards the end. I did spill my beer at the very end. Sorry, guys. And uh, I think you're just going to really enjoy this episode. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Brown. It's Brock Cannon here. This is another episode of the Brock Cannon Podcast, number 30 tonight, which I suppose is significant and super pumped to have with me ultramarathon champion extraordinaire Chris Brown, Santa Barbara local. And this is kind of a unique episode because we're actually doing this live. We're not recording this over Skype or Zoom. Chris is here in my living room and we're drinking IPAs, which Chris, you should know. Mm-hmm. I'm not an IPA drinker, so you know this. This is a sign of respect. <laughs> this is this is um, this is me expanding my taste buds, getting used to the hoppiness. And although we did put oranges in these, that's true. I I think uh, <laughs> it only makes sense. You're you're supposed to drink. It's not necessarily about what you like. It's about drinking the appropriate thing in the appropriate place <laughs> in the appropriate moment, right? <laughs> I would agree with that. And I, so this this podcast will be quite comical at at least because um full disclosure Chris, I chugged one of uh, like I chugged a, a hard beverage right after my run. Sure. On an empty stomach. As so you would. Yeah. So <laughs> in the name of seeking calories very quickly. So this episode could be very comical by the end of it. Um but we're going to go ahead and jump into this deliver a lot of value. So Chris, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Where did you grow up? And then how did you end up here in Santa Barbara? I uh, grew up in Seattle. Um, What to say about that? Um, Everything that I am into now, I got into there from food to running. Um, But I I made my way to California for school um, and then kind of putzed around, spent some time in the Bay Area, and then eventually landed in Santa Barbara. The reason I came here was that a couple of friends of mine from school uh, and guys who, with whom I worked in a restaurant there um, decided to open a spot here in Santa Barbara called Barbarino. Yes. Um, and I wasn't originally going to be a part of it, at least in terms of being here and involved on a day-to-day basis. I was definitely... Uh, an unofficial consultant for it. Uh, in the months leading up to their opening, I was on phone calls with the guys uh, pretty often, just 
shooting the shit, um, kind of troubleshooting, and also planning to write their beer program from afar. Okay. Uh, so I was getting in touch with distributors and stuff, just, you know, helping in whatever way I could remotely. Um, For people that don't know about Barbarania, which this is so funny you're bringing this up, because Shannon and I just went there last week. Oh, cool. For the first time ever. Did you know that was I was involved in that? I, I had heard rumblings okay. that you had worked there at one point, yeah. but I didn't know much more. But yeah. it was wonderful. So tell everyone about Barbarino. Right? Yeah, so Bar- Barbarino, uh, I'm I'm not an owner there, um, but I'm really proud to have been a part of it. It's one of the most thoughtful and kind of meaningful restaurants I've ever uh, heard of, let alone gotten the opportunity to be a part of. The food is, on the surface, kind of modern Californian, which is to say, like, progressive American which itself is to say, like, locally rooted in terms of ingredients, but technically French and Northern Italian in terms of technique, if you want to get into, like, the technical yeah. nitty-gritty of what Californian cuisine is. But the thing that is really cool about Barbarino is um, everything on the menu is driven by Santa Barbara culture and history. Mm-hmm. So everything that we're serving has a reason why it's there, And it has a cultural reference point behind it. So in some cases, it's like deeply, deeply weeded in in obscure Central Coast history. Like, you know, we'll use locally foraged stuff that was like staples of the indigenous diet here that's no longer even considered food by people. Okay. Uh, But on the other, you know, end of things, it gets kind of goofy. Like we have a tribute dish to the Egg McMuffin because that was invented in Santa Barbara. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Egg McMuffin's from here. (laughs) So, you know, it's like, it's everything that feels very Santa Barbara from tri-tip to avocados, but then also these kind of like cultural deep cuts. Okay. Um, But the the thread that runs through the whole menu is it's got to tie to the place. And so it ends up being really educational, but not in like a stuffy, overwhelming kind of, you know. I got that. Yeah. Um, So... I don't know, there's not a there's not a lot of places that are really that committed to that specific of a theme. Yeah. Um, there's an old saying. I don't know if it it definitely applies to the food world. I, I think it applies elsewhere. But limitation breeds creativity, right? Mm. Like it, it, people talk about this in in restaurants all True. the time. If you really define a narrow uh, kind of niche in which to work, while at first it seems intimidating, it ends up bringing out the best in you because it. Um, forces you to get creative if you're if you limit your kind of parameters and tools mm-hmm. um so anyway yeah that that place is is pretty rad um so I, I moved here kind of last minute right when they were on the verge of opening uh i just decided you know, i can't let these guys do it without me mm-hmm. so i moved down thinking i would stay for you know four to six months just be extra hands uh, work more or less for free, go broke, move home, restart, <laughs> do my own thing after that. But yeah. if if a, if one of your best friends is starting a company in a field in which you have expertise, like you fucking help them, yeah. right? Yeah. Especially if you're 24. So uh, with nothing to lose, I just moved down and threw my, myself at the thing for a while. And, and I did exactly that. I went broke and was on my way to move home. And kind of on my way out the door, they said, hey, listen, by the way, we're obviously doing another restaurant after this. And if you come back, you're cut in as an owner. So hmm. 
Um, I thought that would be a year or two later, and it was like four years till we finally opened. But okay. that's that's where we are now. The three of us are owners at Cubaneo, which could not be more different from Barbarania, but it's <laughs> you know special nonetheless. Okay, so I want to back up just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So with with being raised in Seattle, and and we're, we haven't even talked running yet. We're we're talking food because I I just think this is fun. Which by the way. Uh, folks that are listening chris just told me about a remote restaurant in northern sweden that i might have him talk about because it was mind-blowing but before we go into that tell us how did you get into food how did you get into beer and like how did you get into the industry um i got into the industry uh just through a love of food which kind of happened simultaneously with running I, I, I mean, it was a long time ago, so I have a hard time really connecting with my motivations back then. I was like a freshman or sophomore in college, or sorry, in, in high school. Um, so, you know, I was like 15 years old, um, and I, I, I don't remember when I started getting interested in food, but I, it, I think it was simultaneous with starting to take running more seriously, which leads me to believe that like basically I started running more and running harder and I got hungry. Right. So I started caring, <laughs> caring about food more. Right. Uh, so I, I distinctly remember some, some kind of early culinary expo- exploration in, um, the, the vehicle of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So I started <laughs> experimenting with PB and J like You're crunchy kidding. versus creamy, yes. maybe a little bit of both yeah. raspberry versus strawberry. <laughs> Why not combine them? Why not do a double decker? Cinnamon in the middle adds a lot. But the all-time trick that I came up with was putting granola on a PB&J. And I think I came up with that independently, though I know other people have gotten there. So I, I, that's the earliest memory I have of experimenting with food. I also remember some ice cream uh, experiments that went wrong because I didn't understand churning and incorporating air while you're freezing something. So I would... I would buy like vanilla ice cream, melt it down, mix stuff in, and then refreeze it. <laughs> and then was surprised that it came out with just an awful icy <laughs> brick texture because I wasn't churning it. Uh, so tons of failures, um, like melting down gummy candies and trying to reform them, and they just turned into you know rock hard because I didn't understand sugar tempering. So you know that this is the kind of stuff I got into. But I was clearly into food at that point. Um, and then sometime, I think when I was probably 17, I just decided I wanted a job. Didn't need one. I had no pressure to get one. I was a high school student living at home. Who cares? Uh, but I just, I get, I don't know why I just wanted one. So I went around my neighborhood just thinking to myself, what are my favorite places to eat? Wouldn't it be cool to work there? Mm-hmm. And ended up uh, working at a, a really awesome local pizza spot. And that was my first industry job. Uh, and since then I've just been hopping between restaurants, always thinking that this one will be the last and then cooler and cooler things keep coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So that's food. Okay. So fast forwarding to today, um, and I was there just last night. I'm a huge fan of Cubaneo. So Cubaneo is Chris's restaurant here. Tell us about Cubaneo. Tell us about the vision of it and tell us you know, tell us what makes it unique. So the idea, the central idea, uh, well, I guess there's a few, 
Um, I guess premise one is once you have a fine dining restaurant, you're attracted to the idea of having a fast casual restaurant. <laughs> so in terms of service, this is the opposite end of the spectrum. It's it's you order at a counter, you order at a window. Um, you know, there's no servers. It's in a bar. It's just it's low key. It's casual. Um, so we stripped down a lot of of the infrastructure at Barbarino that seemed like the source of all our struggles. Mm-hmm. But of course, that doesn't work. Um, so yeah, part part one was coming up with a really simple concept, uh, and then part two, the actual cuisine that we're doing. Um, Julian, who's uh, the kind of college best friend I was alluding to, he is, his, his heritage is Cuban. His dad came over from Cuba when he was like three or five years old. Mm-hmm. So um, he's got connection to that culture. He brought with him uh, some like deep, deep family recipes mm-hmm. uh, that have remained intact. So we started there. Um, we messed with it quite a bit because it's California and there's various reasons why traditional, authentic Cuban cuisine won't fly in Santa Barbara. Um, like lack of spice, lack of freshness. It's kind of like deep, hearty, pork-centric rice and beans plantains. Mm-hmm. Um, it It's not like the bright, assertive, herbaceous, kind of colorful cuisine we want in Santa Barbara. So we, had, we you know, intentionally while remaining traditional, modified it to fit the area, which is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, would, would the avocado salad be a, a flair to that? I don't... Or, I mean, avocados, really? I you know, you could for sure find them in Cuba, but they're not, like, they're yeah. not central to Cuban food. Yeah. But try opening a restaurant in Santa Barbara without avocados. Right. What are you, what are you thinking? <laughs> right. So, you know, we're being true to Cuban cuisine historically, but we're also being true to... Santa Barbara still, you know, it has to make sense here. Um, so that that was kind of the idea, to do something simple, stripped down, um, and then the, we, we had this connection to this cuisine that's never been done in Santa Barbara before. And frankly, on the West Coast, is like extraordinarily underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Um, Cuban, the kind of Cuban diaspora is very East Coast still. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a a lot of Cuban food in New York and especially in, in Florida still, but um, it's not really a thing in California. There's a few spots, but everyone can name all of them uh, off the top of their head if they're into Cuban food. So that's a sign that there's, you know, not a lot going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's kind of what we were aiming to do with it uh, is do traditional, locally centered, stripped down um yeah, so that was the aim. Well, it's phenomenal. And with me being one of those weird-ass vegans, I get the same thing every time. But I get <laughs> the yuca fries with... What's the garlic sauce? It's so uh, yeah, we call it cojoyo. It's kind of a... There's It's an allusion to a traditional Cuban white garlic sauce yeah but technically the recipe that we're using is basically lebanese food okay yeah but it, it's it's got a reference point to it but yeah it's basically emulsified garlic and lime juice it, it's so good and and so like literally probably once a week maybe it when when shannon's in town i take her there that's like our date spot and it, the yucca fries are an essential like oh yeah but we get <laughs> we get the garlic sauce in front of us and and i've been now ordering the chimichurri 
Separately. Yeah, good move. <laughs> How'd you find out about that? I, I don't know. I, I think you gave it to me. Oh, once. did I? Now oh, I asked for right, it every time. Right. But yeah. we both just know, like, hey, you know, kissing's going to be kept to a minimum sure after is. the garlic sauce, but it's so yep. worth it. Yeah, that's, that'll mess you up, dude. <laughs> it's phenomenal, though. Yeah. So, yeah, and then I get the avocado salad, and the black beans are, are just to die for. Yeah. I always feel nourished and full after that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things... Um, I'm glad that the yuca and cohoyo have kind of become a staple for you because, <laughs> because on it, I, I, you know, I mentioned the cultural connection and the, I, this idea of doing something simple and stripped down. Um, but my, my culinary muse, uh, is a very specific type of restaurant the type of place, and everybody has at least one of these in their hometown, but it's that spot where anytime you're back in town for more than eight hours, you have to go there and get that one thing that you yeah. always got. Yeah. Maybe you got it when you were a kid, you were in high school. Maybe, I don't know, you started going there later, but but it's become as essential to your visits home as seeing your family. Right. Like, when I go back to Seattle, there's a couple things I have to eat, and if I don't do it i'm the trip's a disappointment it's a disappointment so yeah like the, i didn't what are those couple of things well one of them actually is uh coincidentally well, not coincidentally it's a caribbean spot and it hmm. with cuban influence and there's a couple things on our menu that are like pretty much cold ripoffs of of the <laughs> spot and yeah. and uh unlike the arts um taking from other chefs is generally regarded as okay uh-huh. in the food business like are they if i called this restaurant up right now and said hey by the way like i reverse engineered your sandwich and i'm serving in santa barbara they'd be like that's fucking awesome man right right <laughs> thanks for the shout out and there's there's like a there's a subtle shout out to them on our menu and people from seattle come in and notice it all the time oh cool yeah so uh, what, what is that sandwich? Uh, the number one and the number two, which are sort of uh, they're placed at number three and number four on our menu, which is just <laughs> to kind of mess with people. But uh, yeah, the references to this spot up in Seattle called Paseo okay. um, and they're not perfect representations of it. But uh, yeah, it they're it's a clear gesture and it's not the same as like stealing material for a comedian, even though I was trying to emulate what they were doing as closely as possible yeah um it's in in the food world it's just kind of assumed that there's there's no original ideas right so you yeah. take you take from what's important to you and make something new out of it yeah um so i don't i don't feel uncomfortable saying out loud that i didn't you know that i tried to take directly from someone because it's totally industry standard and people are actually pretty stoked about it usually right yeah so now that you're in ownership, what do you like best about it and what do you like least about it? Man, um, <laughs> I mostly like least about it, I would say. <laughs> it's, well, I mean, I'm, we're almost six months in. So as far as like theoretical dark times, this is about where you would expect to be in a bad place. Mm-hmm. Um, we're settling into a rhythm. Things are a little more sustainable in terms of day-to-day operations. Um, 
But this is about, I think, the point where you get worn out and the momentum of early opening starts to wear off and you stop being able to say, oh, we're brand new. Yeah. Um, it's been pretty dark, honestly, since we opened. I'm, in like, by nature, not attracted to management. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've struggled immensely since this thing opened with trying to deal with the responsibilities of managing people. Um, and I'm constantly overwhelmed by uh, what that takes. And... Um, just the there's there's a certain as a as a manager and especially as an owner it's really hard to get off of uh kind of the edge of just waiting for something to go wrong Mm -hmm. because if something falls through for anybody if someone doesn't show up if someone's late if someone messes up something it always it always flows back to me and Mm -hmm. i'm the one who has to cover up uh, so I just cover butts all the time. And the issue is when you have, you know, 15 or 20 employees, like if someone's late once every two weeks, then that means someone's late every day. Right. That's true. So on an individual basis, even if you're like a relatively reliable person, uh, and you have a bunch of those people, the overall effect in terms of the day to day is really bad from an owner perspective (laughs) so it's almost every day something goes uh really seriously wrong that i have to go and address yeah um and it's really that's super challenging to deal with and i find myself like kind of resenting the whole thing and the people even though i think they're great on you know an individual basis i find myself resenting everybody right um and uh just worried all the time because even even if I mean things kind of come and go in waves, you'll have a, a period of a couple of weeks where every day something's happening. Mm-hmm. Every day something goes wrong, and you just get into that rhythm of all right. Well, I closed last night. I was here till here till two a.m. because someone called out, and then oh, of course the next morning someone's going to call out too, so I have to mm. be here again. Uh, and it, it'll you know it happens again and again and again, and and then you get into rhythms where things are good, and everyone's kind of reliable for a while but even when that's happening you're still on edge mm-hmm. because i can't go on a run in the backcountry without my phone if i go into the backcountry and don't have service for three hours mm-hmm. and something happens you know i haven't had the privilege of not having my phone on me yeah in six months Ugh. and it's getting better i've it's not so much that i've phased myself out it's that i've weaned people off of me so I've just kind of deliberately passed responsibility to people in a way that wasn't, I guess, totally fair, but needed to happen. Probably a little slower than it did, but at a certain point, I was like, all right, you know what? All ordering is you guys now, and you're going to mess it up for about a month, and yeah. then you're going to get it, but it's yeah. going to be a bad month, right. and I'm not intervening. Yeah, letting them grow. Totally. There's a, yeah. a kind of a gray area between empowerment and abandonment. <laughs> right yeah and i uh as kind of i'm not a hard ass because i'm i'm a hard ass in the sense that like i'm i'm very much like a take care of your own shit and and don't complain ever that's yeah. how i go through life yeah but but also like if someone comes to me 
with whatever issue they have and whatever they have to do about it, I'm super sensitive to that. And I'm always like, all right, you're fine. You're okay. Every, everything you're doing is fine. Yeah. So I'm a sucker for sure. And a horrible disciplinarian. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, I'm still conflicted about what went down. Me just saying, all right, you know what? I'm backing away. Let's see how you guys do. Right. Uh, so far it's been good though. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, things suffer a little bit. I'd say the restaurant's like, you know, 80% of what I want it to be. But I don't know if I can get the last 20% without sacrificing my personal life in a way that I'm not willing to. Right. So that's a battle, trying to figure out what's worth it. How far I can, how close we can get to what we envisioned. Uh and how much of our personal lives we're willing to sacrifice to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to jump around a little bit, but this is so funny. So I lived in Santa Barbara now just over two years. And when I first came here, started meeting a few running friends, started seeing Strava segments. (laughs) This name, Chris Brown, kept coming up. And... All, all I heard about you at the time was, yeah, he's super fast. He has every KOM, which KOM, for those that aren't familiar, is it means king of the mountains. It's, it's basically these on this app called Strava, which, you know, measures the best routes and times and everything. And, and you know, compares everyone to everyone like social media does. So you kept coming up, and then I, I just got so curious. And, and I don't remember who told me they're like, yeah, I think he works. I think he like runs in the morning. <laughs> I don't run in the morning. But this is I almost like, this never is like, run in the morning. This is like back morning. in the day. This is like a yeah. couple years ago. Uh-huh. They're like, I think he like runs during the day. He trains really hard, and then he goes and works probably at the time at Barbarania yeah. at night, and then he does it all over again. Yeah. And, and so that was all I had heard about you, and then um, you know, other than that, you're you're super fast. So tell us a little more about. Like, how did you get into running? When did you start? I oh, mean, yeah. You ran I, collegiate. ran collegiate. I ran high school. I ran junior Olympics, which is poorly named, but um, <laughs> because it's an all-comers meet on a national level. Um, I've, I've been running long distance competitively since I was seven, Wow. I think, maybe eight or nine. Long but distance I was, meaning meaning my, a mile or more. Okay. Uh, I was on the track team at age five or six. Wow. So it's it's been forever, and basically, like I kept getting the positive feedback of bumping up in distance and doing better. So from as long as I can remember, it's uh, I'm the long distance guy. Whatever, however long it is, that's better for me. Right. So it's it's just always been there. Um, so that then I got did, into where did you go? You went to UCSB or no? No, I went to Claremont McKenna, little D three school out east of LA. Okay, yeah. So, um, it was like the D three competition is like a really good high school team. Okay, so it, it was a not that much of a jump. Uh, the discrepancy between like a D one program and a D three program is pretty gigantic. Okay, uh, yeah. So I mean, I, I ran out there. I was I wasn't I could have probably walked on to basically any D1 program but would have scored at nowhere important. I wouldn't have been at 
contributing member of basically any team. Okay. Um, whereas D3, uh, I was well suited to be like a contributing member of the team. Were you doing cross country as well? And track, yeah. And track. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've been running a long time. <laughs> yeah. Take us to where you are now and and you know we, I want to get into western states I want I want people to understand what western states is um I want to get into maybe your most memorable race and then just was the, I, I guess my first question is when did it really become a reality for you that like I'm pretty damn good at this like I'm gonna really dig in in a in a serious way and, and make something of this so after college, so again, I, I ran in a big conference in high school and I was, you know, I went, my school didn't particularly care about running. So I was probably, I was the best at, at my school most times, but I understood that that didn't mean I was the best everywhere else. I ran against a bunch of teams with some serious runners. So I knew what a serious runner looked like. I, again, I've been doing it since I was little. I'd run at national meets. I'd seen fast people and I knew that I wasn't one of them. And I got to college and kind of the same thing. Like, I was good for my team, but my team wasn't the best. And there were tons of teams with better dudes than me. Uh, and, you know, I, I always knew my place. Um, that I was kind of a back of the front pack or front of the second pack guy. Mm -hmm. And then when I graduated, I, I when I was in college, I always kind of thought for some reason or another, well... For specific reasons, actually. I thought my coach's program didn't work well for me. I thought he was a great coach, but over the course of every season, I would get slower. Mm -hmm. My first race was always my best, and then I would wear out over the season. Hmm. I'd be super promising at the start, and then by the end of the season, I was uh, burnt out and running slow. Hmm. So I figured, all right, good coach. I'm, I have specific needs here. Like I'm the weird one. I'll... But obviously the summer training's working, whatever I'm doing on my own terms. So I'll get out of college, train myself, run my best 5K and 10K ever. It'll be great. Yeah. Got out of college, uh, started, well, continued to focus on 5K, 10K and got so much slower so fast. Mm. So I figured wrong, basically. Uh, once you leave college, if you don't have the team structure and the, the pressure to get to the prescribed workouts two, three times a week. Uh, it's just, it's so hard to get better at competitive distances mm -hmm. at, if you don't have a team. It's basically impossible. Hmm. Uh, or I think so. So I spent maybe three, four years just kind of putzing around doing like a lazy imitation of college training, <laughs> running like five days a week, or sorry, most day probably seven, six, seven days a week, but like fifty or sixty miles a week, uh -huh. um, which if the intensity's high is great. Sure. Um, but I was doing you know like kind of a half-ass workout once a week and like a long run that's now I would consider like a short run. Sounds like my training. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I was I was running exceedingly casually, uh, thinking I was going to get better, and then realized oh I'm not. So. Meanwhile, I had always 
planned on switching to ultras. I just figured I would wait until I was like 40. Because when I was growing up, my hero was Scott Jurek. I didn't care uh-huh. about like Prefontaine. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, li- I followed track and I liked track, but like we had a we had a folk hero in Seattle. When I was growing, like my, when I started running was like the late 90s, early 2000s. And Scott Jurek was peak yeah. at that point. Yeah. And if you're in Seattle, he, I mean nationwide globally like people know of scott jerk if they're in the sport but if you're in seattle you could be a basketball player and you knew scott jerk he wow. was a local hero okay um he, he i mean he'd be like the equivalent of like a i don't know a, like a really really high quality special teams player in football yeah like nationally not known but if you're in that town like that's the dude yeah um so he was a big deal and so i i always kind of had him on my radar and in a lot in the case of a lot of runners ultra running is always this like people know about it but it's this impossible thing mm-hmm. that doesn't apply to them but for me from when i was little ultra running was always in my wheelhouse like i always knew that it was there that it was a thing um that was possible uh and i always kind of figured i would go there because again i'd constantly had this reinforcement of every time the distance gets longer i get better yeah so i extrapolated oh well someday i'll do that but at the time the guys who were doing the best at at ultra distances were late 30s to mid 40s right um and they still do well but yeah the tide has turned a little bit it has but that prevented me from immediately jumping into it i got out of college and thought all right i'll kill a few years like trying to get better at the 5k 10k and um since that was going so poorly, I, I just like really suddenly transitioned to trail running. Yeah. And that was actually concurrent with when I moved here okay. and got access to all these cool trails. Yeah. Yeah. What do you love most about trail running? Uh, I think, um, I think, uh, most, I think if runners are, in touch with their own motivations and really honest, then the reason why they're doing it is going to change every day and, or at least be really multifaceted. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's, I don't think there's a thing I love most about it. Uh, a lot of times it's straight competition. Like I'll go weeks without caring about the view up there yeah, and then I'll have a few shitty runs in a row and then be up on tunnel trail and just kind of stop and look at me like, Oh man, I have, I spent, you know, I've been up on this trail 10 times without looking up. Yeah. Like this is amazing. So I, on the one hand, it's not the nature that gets me up there, but that's part of it. Yeah. The detaching, um, you know, it's the competition side of things. It's the, the beauty of getting out there. It's the adventure side of things that like, is this going to work out? I don't know. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit of everything. I don't think I have really specific reasons for doing it. It just works. And I'm also a bad judge of that because I've been doing it for so long that um, like, I didn't, ha- I didn't make the conscious choice to start running. So I never had a reason. It was just always there. Mm-hmm. It was always a thing that I did. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe... Maybe I'm weird for that reason. Maybe I don't. I'm not as in touch with my motivations as someone who got to it later. Well, no, I think that makes sense. It's, um, and I, I feel that you know, some days it's like I'm trail running to literally blow off steam, um, 
very real example yesterday was nothing more than I, I suffer with anxiety sometimes mm-hmm. like yesterday was really shitty so it was about just killing that and then yeah like some days it is about the view yeah like I'm gonna go enjoy this get yeah. lost in the mountains for a few hours but I, I, I get that um, so okay so you started transitioning into trail running more and then what was your first ultra and then let's let's talk a little bit about the journey of how you eventually are running 100 milers well as a as basically a goof me and a good friend ran uh, a 50k uh out in the desert called the high desert 50k (laughs) 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 oh man great name uh it's out in ridgecrest which is like military testing facility or something out there i think it's I don't, maybe they, they do a lot of, well, I, I have no idea what they do at this particular spot, but UFOs. I was about to theorize about some Top Gun <laughs> shit, but I know there's some planes out in the Eastern Sierra and they do some, you know, cool flights out there because okay. there's less to run into, but I don't know if that comes out of Ridgecrest or what, but um, anyway, we did this race out there kind of as a goof and this was a guy who I had been basically equivalent to and who would he'd pretty much outkick me in every race. Like, we were really similar, but he had just a little edge, and he was a year older, so he's yeah. like, all right, that's my dude, right? He's yeah. the guy that I will be next year, uh-huh. every every year, but he'll keep getting a little better, and I'll keep getting a little better. And uh, and then we did this race, and sure enough, I was kind of struggling to keep up with him for, like, about a marathon, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, his metabolism just didn't shut down, but this thing happened to him where... He wasn't running as fast anymore, and I suddenly started to feel fresh. Hmm. So this thing happened near the end of the race where I suddenly felt this thing that was like, I feel good now. Uh, and I could, my legs hurt like hell, yeah. but in terms of will and motivation, and you know, there's a difference between running out of energy and having your legs hurt, right? Uh and it's not the legs hurting that stops you usually. Uh, so I suddenly felt good and just took off on him. Um, and, uh, you know, we did pretty well. I mean, we, a 50K doesn't take that much different than collegiate training. So, you know, we were fitter yeah. than most of the people out there. Yeah. So we did well. Um, but, you know, and I, I drove home from that and he was ruined for days. <laughs> and so there was this kind of seed planted like, oh, maybe that is something I could be good at. Yeah. And uh, then I, it was six years before I hopped in another one. Wow. Uh, and I w- did Way Too Cool and then Lake Sonoma back to back um, and did what I thought was well at both of them, but in hindsight wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. I finished right along like the first females, um, which again, I thought was cool. Um, but I was not running I was not training very hard and I just kind of hopped in them and was stoked with it but uh, then basically I got in via the lottery to a hundred miler and um, was terrified yeah and started training really hard yeah I always subscribe to the you know at most you increase your training by 10% per week right mm-hmm. mileage wise and I just decided what if i don't what if i just start running 100 mile weeks okay and i just did it yeah and uh stuck to it for a while just 
basically doubled my volume and just decided to commit to that. Wow. And uh, I got really good really fast. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so talk for those that aren't like, to me, that's, (laughs) I I have, I've only been running a few years, but like to me, a hundred mile week is, is kind of insane. And yet I, I see elite athletes like yourself that are doing that every week. So for those that aren't familiar with like how, how much volume that is, walk us through like a typical week of how you'd hit a hundred miles. Well, and that's and that's also with like for those that aren't super savvy, there there is a very big difference between running on trails and and getting serious elevation gain and running on flat. But I think roads. that I think that ends up being good for you in terms of like risk avoidance because of because if you're constantly switching between going up and going down and you have these technical surfaces to run on you're, I think, less prone to overuse injuries because okay. your muscles are doing different things all the time. Okay. So even though you're spending way more time out there, I think it's safer for your body um, just because you work your, your support muscles more. And, you know, if, if overuse injuries are repetition, mm-hmm. you don't have repetition when you're out in the trails, or not nearly to the extent that you do on the road. But, I mean, like, I was super afraid of doing mileage like that. Uh I remember the first year I put in for the Western States lottery, I had not really started training seriously yet. I was still probably doing like 40 or 50 miles a week thinking it was, you know, legit. Um, And I remember being on a run and thinking it was like the day before the lottery maybe. And I was fantasizing about it. And I was, I thought to myself, all right, if I get into the Western States lottery, I'm going to do 15 miles a day for seven straight days. Mm -hmm. Like this crazy thing. Yeah. This absolutely wild dream of doing 15 miles seven days in a row. Yeah. And I, I got a little farther in my run and was like, dude, that's crazy. You can't do that. <laughs> like, you, if you get in, you're just going to go straight and injure yourself right away. Yeah. And and I, I just remembered that recently because now that's like doing 15 miles a day. Like, okay, I just did a bunch of medium runs all week. Yeah. But it's crazy uh just what you can normalize Mm -hmm. and it takes a couple sort of steps uh mentally to just kind of reframe things but if you're i I, you know i was running 50 miles a week and i decided you know what i'm gonna do an 80 mile week and then another one and then another one and then another one and all of a sudden and you probably have felt this when you're like coming back from an injury maybe and you'll do a bunch of like three mile runs mm-hmm. and three miles and then you have to do like a four mile run and you get bored because it takes so long. Right. And but if you just commit for a few weeks to doing a lot more then that basically your mental threshold of what a short, medium and long run just changes and you get bored later and uh it just the whole thing reframes. It's not. It does. Doesn't even feel physically harder. How did you bridge that gap, though? So, like, from from going to whatever you were doing, fifty, sixty, seventy mile weeks to one hundred, which seemed like insane at the time. Were you thinking about all the other people that were going to be in Western states that were likely training hundred mile weeks, or like, how did you mentally wrap yourself around that? Well, actually, there's kind of a missing step there. I, so it wasn't for Western States because that wasn't my first hundred, but 
so I did way too cool in Lake Sonoma, which are a 50K and a 50 mile. And I thought I did well. And by the end, you know, in the last quarter of the race, I started feeling awful and just dragged myself through and my legs hurt. And I got to the finish and I was like, oh my God, my knees and my hips and my shins. And that's what an ultra feels like, right? Yeah. Great. Uh, and then I did a 100K and the same thing happened. Like I got through it, but I hurt a lot at the end. Then I signed up for this 95 miler, so functionally 100 miler in Scotland uh, and didn't change my training at all hmm. and was running, you know, like a poor imitation of college training for... 50 miles a week and went there and like to this day it's the worst experience I've ever had physically I thought both of my arches were torn if not my feet were broken (laughs) uh I it was it was so dark it was just (laughs) it's you know it's the brutality that I mean, people get it pretty often in ultras, but I had not had it to that point. I just thought everything was broken and there's no way I could finish. Yeah. And I got pressured by some aid station volunteers to just keep going to the next one and the next one. And I just hated it. Uh, but I made it through and I regretted it so much. Um, but of course that thing happens where you're like, all right, well, I have to keep doing these. Uh, so I signed up for another one thinking, oh, it's a lottery. I probably won't get in, but I need to start getting my name in. So it was the San Diego 100. Mm-hmm. And I got in first try. And as soon as I got in, I just thought to myself, like, shit, dude. Like, think about what happened last time. This is not good. You actually <laughs> have to train for this. So I would kind of held myself back up till that point with just worrying about what mileage would do. Uh, to my body and thinking oh you know 10% rule blah 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 like you can't increase your mileage that much just making up excuses to stay at low mileage yeah I just threw it out the window and said alright it's gonna be a risk but fuck it I need it I can't do this thing without it so I just bumped it up committed for a while and then it normalized and mm-hmm. it was fine yeah yeah just just do it for a little while and it normalized and it's, it's risky I'm not saying it's not but uh I think with anything in life, it's that way. Like you can, you can probably think back to a time in your life where you had an insanely chaotic schedule, but it was just normal. Yeah. And then you can think of a time when you had like a really easy schedule and sometimes you'd still feel stressed out. Right. You get into a rhythm and you, uh, you just, that becomes that be like whatever, your kind of median day is anything more than that is stressful and anything less than that's relaxing no matter where that median is uh so once you actually do it it normalizes like you said so i want to see if we could relate this to like our listeners and, and this could be with anything like how do you mentally normalize something this is just like I need to go full out and just do this. Mm-hmm. And, and then once I have proven to myself that I can do it, it's more believable. But for someone, that, like, what advice would you give to someone that's kind of trying to make that quantum leap? Well, one of the hard things is you need to have a, a lifestyle or a life uh, 
outside of the running that makes sense and into which you can fit the running. Mm -hmm. So I had the benefit at that point of working, you know, 20, 25 hours, 30 hours a week. And I would start work at like somewhere between 4 and 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. And I'd get off at 11 or midnight. So like I could basically sleep in, get up, be lazy run as long as I want and still have plenty of time to yeah. decompress, eat a bunch, go to work. That you know, it, it Off the top of your head, it seems like restaurant schedule and running don't go hand in hand. Dude, they're perfect. Are you kidding? <laughs> you get to sleep in, right. run as long as you want, and then go to work at like five or six. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. The only <laughs> downside is you're on your feet a lot, but if you use that to your advantage, like that just kind of like extra miles right um so i had the advantage of having a lot of time so i didn't have to get up extra early and do it uh so you need to be in a place in your life where you can handle the extra work both kind of physically and mentally Mm -hmm. um and i it's not it it's not um a secret at this point that if you're experiencing a lot of stress in other parts in your life you need to adjust your training to to accommodate for that right like an 80 mile week for someone without a job is totally different from an 80 mile week for someone who works you know in a, like an icu right there right. it's a different thing um but in terms of uh, assuming you have the space in your life to do it uh Again, I would I would equate it to like the feeling of coming back from an injury and having a couple miles feel long and then mm-hmm. a couple miles you go a couple miles more and you're like a 5 mile run are you kidding? Mm-hmm. And then you keep going farther and then you look back and you're like, "Wow, remember when I was stressed out about running 5 miles yeah. and how long and boring that felt?" Yeah. Uh and if you just commit to going farther and spending a couple weeks doing that and you keep it super low intensity at the start yeah. which is you know put on a podcast and grind it out and don't worry about speed or anything but if you can just normalize being out there for that amount of time yeah the longest run i did in college is probably 110 minutes that's like the shortest run i do ever now yeah i'm i'm almost every day i'm out there for two hours yeah and i couldn't fathom that right it's not because i wasn't working hard it's just uh yeah, you just reframe what long is. Right. It's right. mostly an attention span thing. Yeah. So So walk us through now you're in ownership of a restaurant, you're you're a lot busier, you're you're worrying about managing people. Will you walk us through kind of a typical day in the life for you? There is absolutely no typical day at this point. <laughs> it sucks, man. Um Yeah. Uh, restaurant ownership has been a disaster for ultra running and I'm hoping to recover from that by kind of withdrawing from the restaurant a little bit and like committing to having a more normal schedule. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, at this point I kind of run when I can. Yeah. I'm still able to get long runs in, but I can't do them at the same time of day. Um, which I'm finding is not ideal. Um, and again, just the, the, the never knowing when something's going to come up is a huge detriment to running. So there's no normal. Walk us through today. Because you're here in your running clothes, so you ran earlier. I, the, I, these aren't 
<laughs> while they are clothes suitable for running, these are more like pajamas. Just yeah, okay, comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I changed. Uh, <laughs> today, I woke up at about 8, went in and did a one-off catering gig alone. So basically, the whole crew was devoted to normal service, but we had this catering gig on the side. So I just went and worked independently of them and put together a bunch of food and delivered it to a catering client. Okay. Came back, uh, washed some dishes, and left, uh, and then went for a run. But normally, I would, you know, my most common day at this point is get up, go for a run, show up to work a little after we open, kind of chill in there, check in, see what needs to be done, and then, you know, hopefully not have to stay too late. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's no normal. So today, how far did you how far did you run today? Uh, I did uh, about two hours. Um, Rattlesnake Trail, which you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, it was hot, so it wasn't a when it gets hot enough, you can't really worry about quality too much. So I just kind of went out and was grinding. Do you run from your house usually? Yeah, just for time efficiency. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, it's it's kind of in a way, it's nice to be able to. Um, especially with the trails here that are so steep, uh, just to get, you know, three or four miles on road right at the beginning and at the end. Warm up a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. nice. Uh, but yeah, that was out there in the heat, which super underrated. Always hotter in the mountains here. Versus it's crazy. Closer to the ocean. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It gets 10 degrees, 15 gets degrees. It's bad up there. Yeah. It's good for you though. I used to be averse to it. Yeah. But uh, you, you just go slower, but it's really, really good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So you went for a run, then you came back and headed back to the restaurant? No, I didn't. Uh, again, I'm kind of like trying to be as irresponsible as possible and check in <laughs> on them as little as I can. So I I think they're fine. We've got some dude like I've got a, today I've got a guy in the morning and a guy at night that are... Yeah, they can handle any problem I can, so awesome. Uh, unless one of them doesn't show up, in which case we're in trouble. Right. But yeah, no, I've been off. I just got back from the run and had a vermouth and soda. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. That's awesome. And then, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about your personal life. I know you have a girlfriend of, of a few years at least, and you know, when do you guys spend time together? What else is important to you in your personal life? Yeah, she uh, she's going through a hell of a transition right now, too. Um, we both, I, maybe about a year ago, kind of saw on the horizon what was about to happen to us and just kind of like simultaneously put seatbelts on. Um, so she <laughs> um, just finished up training both as a masseuse and as a yoga teacher. Oh, cool. And so she finished those up, has jobs in both of those fields immediately, and her old job. So she's phasing into two while phasing out of one. And so her ev every day is chaos for her. Wow. She's working usually three different jobs per day. Uh, but it's all in this sort of logical transition time. It's like you can see a month two months from now that it's going to be fine it's going to be stable yeah at once stable and flexible and just really ideal but it's right now is just gnarly yeah um 
And that's kind of the same as what I've been doing for the past six months. It's like, I saw it coming. I knew it was going to suck. I braced myself for it and pushed as hard as I could to try to, to try to replace myself as quickly as I could. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't mean it didn't suck. Yeah. But, uh, it's nice kind of having a light at the end of the tunnel, knowing like, all right, I can tough this out right now and then, and it'll get stable soon. Right. So yeah, that, that's what she's up to. Um, she's been like, and again, I think a lot of this was knowing in advance what was going to happen, but the level of understanding and support that she was able to provide while I was in the dark place, mm-hmm. uh, was like just superhuman. Yeah. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to do that a little as much as I can for her now, uh, because my my things have toned down a little bit and hers have ramped up. And I, you know, I needed her support. It's not so much that I needed her support; it's that I needed her understanding. I needed her to, um, I needed her to be okay with having a boyfriend that was going to have the most ridiculously awful schedule, <laughs> and, and and just just be okay with that for a few months knowing that it was going to get better on the other side yeah uh and she was and it was amazing and so now she's going through the same thing and i'm trying to be like all right well whatever you have to do yeah uh like i you know i'm not gonna get mad at you for anything ever and if you need me i'll do anything you need so um yeah it it's uh it's good to get into, you know, like kind of long-term stable rhythms and be good with each other. And you also, I think, need to be able to accommodate each other in the chaotic times and know that they are just that chaotic times on the way to stable times again. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. I think we're going to pause and grab another beer. Sure. And then we're going to come back. All right. We are back. We took a little break. We've got... More alcohol in front of us, beers, and we've got like a wine beer combo. <laughs> yeah, feral, feral vinifera, aged version, batch one, I believe. Oh yes. Yeah, it's a local. Uh, some thought into it, but uh, yeah, Fire Firestone Barrel Works in collaboration with Andrew Murray Vineyards. It's delicious. Winery. Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay, so where did we leave off? What What I wanted to know was. <clears throat> What, what still motivates you to run these ultras? Like, where where does the drive come from at this point? I know you have sponsors and all that, but like, where does the drive actually come from? Um, I think so. The earliest drive in running that I can remember was this notion I had of um, being really... uh, I I always felt satisfied when I would outperform people's expectations relative to my age. Mm -hmm. So I was always running distances that were too far for how young I was. Okay. Um, So I ran a 12K race when I was like eight years old. And I remember blowing by people and them just going like, look at that kid go. Yeah. And um, I have a, I had, I've kind of abandoned it because I'm in like peak age at this point, but I had a kind of tradition of always doing something um, 
kind of absurd for the age group that I was in. So I, I remember like what I did at 14 that I was, you know, impressed personally by, uh, that I was too young to do. And then 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 every year until I was probably like 25 or so. I had a thing that I did that I was too young to do and that that was cool. Uh, so I had that, um, so in, in terms of competition, that always that type of thing always kind of drove me. So personal competition, uh, I've always been bad face to face competition. Like if it's we're on a track and it's me and one other guy, uh, and it's down to the home stretch, I'm probably gonna let him win. Mm-hmm. I don't really. It's weird in those the heat of the moment thing. I don't really care that much. Mm-hmm. If you're in a kicking race with me, uh, that's probably a good place to be. Because uh-huh. I don't, I it's weird in the la in home stretches. I don't have, I don't have a person to person competitive uh, drive. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, just the um, I think I'm driven by the. There's a tough thing. I wonder if I can do that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, more like mountaineer type motivations than track runner type motivations. I think. Interesting. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna just go there because I know this has been like a big issue for myself and a lot of runners. There's kind of a an addiction, if you will, to the hormonal balance, to the endorphins, to the chemicals that are literally released when we run. Do you do you take any days off when you do? Do you feel it? Do you do you notice that come down after a huge race that was totally epic and then those chemicals leave your body uh i don't have um a tremendous uh hormonal response to running in a positive sense like i don't i mean i i I guess i get runners high a little bit but it's rare and not like worthy of that much attention Mm -hmm. Um, so i'm certainly not chasing endorphins i don't think i get a lot of feedback there um and I think in terms of taking days off, I've got a pretty healthy relationship with running. I think when I, for example, get injured, I'm able to reframe and think to myself, hell yeah, man, I get two months off. Sounds great. I'm just going <laughs> to fucking drink and eat ice cream all the time. And I don't have to run. Are you kidding me? What a great load off my shoulders. And then when I get back into it, it's a privilege to be back at it. You know, yeah. I think there's, um, it's a great strategy to appreciate whatever situation you're in uh or at least be able to reframe whatever situation you're in so that you're stoked about it yeah uh so i take more off days than most uh serious ultra runners i think i'm i probably take i i take it almost always one a week which is i think pretty rare um even at like peak peak training i'm perfectly healthy i'm training my ass off for an a race i'm taking a day off a week mm-hmm. uh and does that literally mean zero running that means physical activity? zero running okay yeah um that's it wasn't i mean it's as much something that i personally reinforce uh it's it's that it's uh, it's something that I, I feel really good doing. Like, uh, I will certainly over, over two or three or four runs start to feel a little draggy and then take a day off and get tons of good feedback 
from doing that because I'll feel awesome the day after an off day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I also remember, again, hearing like Scott Jurek talk about, you know, no matter what his training was like uh, and how dialed he was and whatever goal he was reaching for, he would always take one day off a week. Mm. And his was devoted to like long hikes, but he would always take one day not running. So I kind of got it from that and then and then got the positive feedback from taking off days even when I thought I should be training hard. Because um, I get into those rhythms where every run just felt shitty and then I would take a day off and come back and think, oh. Because it's just... If you wake up every day and ask yourself, what's the thing I can do today to become the best runner possible? Some days that answer is going to be take the day off, man. Right. It's not going to be go on a run. Right. Especially not going a hard run or a long run. Uh, it's it's not... I mean, it can be healthy to run every day, but it's not healthy, I think, to commit to running every day no matter what. Uh, I think you got to... I mean, really, especially in ultra running, you have to pay attention to what your body wants. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's as much like realizing when you need to do speed work and do speed work and realizing when you need to do long runs and do long runs as it is realizing when you need a day off and take a day off. People, I don't think, give themselves days off enough and they end up just uh, doing a bunch of really low-quality runs when they could have just taken a day off and done more high-quality runs. How better the next day. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so with your training... Do you have a coach now, or do you just kind of know what you're doing at this point? Uh, neither. I, <laughs> I've i had a lot of coaches. Um, in high school, I had four coaches in four years. Um, in college, I had a good, stable coach. Um, but, you know, and then before that, I, I, I had uh, I, a lot of... I've been running long enough and through enough different programs that I've had a lot of coaches of a lot of different styles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that I don't think coaches are good. I took a lot from it. Like I know, uh, like built into almost my like circadian rhythms are, is like the the Lydiard structure of a week, like the uh, like which Arthur Lydiard or similar Jack Dan this is like track and field uh technical terms these are dudes who like wrote programs that are now like the basis of D1 track and cross country training mm-hmm. nationwide but like deep in my bones I feel the you know Monday moderate run Tuesday track workout Wednesday easy Thursday long tempo Friday easy Saturday race Sunday long run repeat like okay. I that the structure of traditional track and field training, it's super deep in me. So I uh, have these urges um, that I think I'm privileged to have where I, I get like, I have a deep sense of when I need speed and I have a deep sense of when I need long. And I don't think, I think uh, that's something that I got from having coaches for so long. But at this point, um, I don't have one. Uh, and it's mostly because I know that if I had one, I just wouldn't do anything that the coach said. Because <laughs> my schedule is fucked, and right, I right. don't do well with authority. So <laughs> uh, I just don't think I would get my money's worth, because whatever the coach told me, I'd say, that's a good idea. I'll do 
30 to 40 percent of what you're telling me to do and then i have schedule conflicts i can't do it dude i don't feel right for that workout today so i'm changing it yeah so let me ask you this for for someone that is an amateur aspiring ultra runner that is maybe shooting to do their first 50k they you haven't done a 50k no no no, you're talking this is i'm talking about somebody else okay yeah yeah um for someone that, you know, they're working full time, they've got kids, they've got responsibilities. If you could only pick three absolutely, I've got to do this do or die workouts per week, what would you tell them to do? So this person has three runs per week. Basically. Let's say they might have more, but if, if they if they have all this chaos in their life and if they only did three, yeah. what would those need to look like? I think they're all long runs. I think the first thing that you do to start doing ultra marathons is reframe what a normal run is in terms of time. Mm-hmm. I think when I, again, when I was in college, like a normal run is 50 minutes to an hour. Everything less than that is a short run. Everything more than that turns into a long run. Mm-hmm. And now my normal run is two hours. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing that you do is just... Uh, turn your default run into much, much longer. And you drop the pace way down. Yeah. You do whatever you got to do. And just don't worry about quality at all. Don't worry about speed. Don't worry about... I mean, climbing's great. I would... That'd be like a close second is just spending all your time going up and down hills. <laughs> but uh, first priority is, uh, I think, ditching the... I'll get my 45 minutes per day in yeah, and just doing two hours three times a week. That'll mm-hmm. make you, that'll prepare you for an ultra a lot more than consistency will. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about when you run? <laughs> Dude, it's like, the convenient thing is you're not, like, you're not fully mentally there when you're running. You're not getting quite the blood flow. Your brain doesn't perform at as as high of a level when you're running. Like if someone put a puzzle in front of you when you're running versus not running, (laughs) you could probably do it, but it'd take you a lot longer. Like it's, and that's the nice thing is you can do this like basic meditative troubleshooting of your day and what you're going through. Right. It takes you a, a fucking long time to do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know. You just keep alternating between, like, how far have I gone? How long do I have? What's next? Yeah. Okay, and I'm mad at this guy. (laughs) All right, how far have I gone? How much is left? How do I feel? Should I take sugar? (laughs) I'm extra mad at that guy. And here's why I'm mad at this guy. And here's what I should have said when he did that thing. And then, how far have I gone? How far do I have to go? What's next? Do I need sugar? <laughs> Shit, I just missed a water fountain. And then by the end of the run, you're not that mad at that guy anymore. <laughs> you know, your 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 brain just gets simpler. Like, it's weird because you can get into those states where you're like, <clears throat> the term for that, um, like dwelling on something. Yeah. But there's a there's a specific term for that. Uh, um, when you're like un, in an unhealthy way, you're uh, like festering dwelling yeah. on uh, what's the term? I don't know. We're drinking beer. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Anyway, so then <laughs> you you do some of that, and I find myself doing that, and I think this is unhealthy. Like I shouldn't yeah. be um, 
letting myself like just internally talk shit <laughs> even if it's stress relief and you kind of get through it and by the end you feel better about it doesn't seem healthy at the time yeah but uh yeah you're not like solving real problems out there i'm so glad we're talking about this because i've always thought i was crazy because everyone's like oh they paint this like zen picture of when you go for a run that like all of life's <laughs> problems are answered and like yeah maybe in like an hour and a half like very nice run at sunset you feel really good but like sometimes when i go longer like i get darker you get super dark and man. i'm like what the hell is wrong with my brain yeah and i'm like making up stories and fear sets in and i'm totally. like thinking about yeah people that are making me mad <laughs> like yeah like so i, I i'm so glad i'm not sometimes you just one. get super grumpy out there yeah it's weird but there's something about just committing to the act of the run and that, that i think that can be it's just like when it can be so hard when you're like you start a run you didn't eat properly beforehand you're 30 minutes in you feel bad you're grumpy you're thinking about people you don't like the weather's bad <laughs> it's hot you're like haven't started sweating enough and properly so you're not like you're not in the rhythm yet and you yeah. just feel like shit and you know you just have so far to go <laughs> it, it's so like every day can be really hard with it but there's something i think significant about just committing to it every day over and over even getting out there and like knowing there's this concept in competitive like collegiate running known as junk mileage mm -hmm. and some people bring it into ultra running too um where like it's kind of like when we we're talking about not taking days off and how all of your runs just turn into shit runs mm -hmm. this idea of junk mileage where you're going out and just you're spending time running but you're not improving because the quality of your run is so low yeah but there's a there's there's a place for that in ultra running that just like go out and do it and your heart rate's not that high and you're just and that it's been reframed in ultra running as time on feet, mm -hmm. and that's as important as anything else. Uh, and it's this taboo thing in in fast running and this sort of like important weapon in ultra running is just getting out there and not working hard aerobically and just mashing your joints. Right. Yeah. Okay. So on that topic of of darkness. Um what would you say is is maybe one or two of your darkest moments in ultra running where just like you just were in the darkest place possible you didn't think you could go on what were those moments um the worst darkest place was uh west highland way 2016 the one in scotland 95 miles uh i didn't so one of the, in ultra running there are certain quantum leaps that you take in terms of uh, like certain distances are categorical differences in terms of uh, strategy in terms of metabolic systems like a marathon and a fifty k are very similar right. a fifty k and a fifty miler are fundamentally different animals right. a fifty k or sorry a fifty miler and a hundred k are very similar. Uh, 100k and 100 miler are very very different hmm. um 
And so most people, when they're building up, when they're going from distance to distance and increasing what they're doing, they most people make the mistake of thinking, oh, it's just the thing I did before, but a little longer. Uh, and don't address the, like, just the the kind of structural difference in these things, like the the metabolic difference, the difference in, like, how you have to eat to get through the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went, point is, I went into this 95 miler thinking, shit, I can just hold 730s for 15 hours. <laughs> and so I ran a, I, I went out in a 330 marathon on trails. Oh my God. It's so dumb. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there's a variety of things about that course and being a first timer though they make that especially ridiculous but yeah i got to like 55 miles and i it was like 40 in that i knew the wheels were going to come off and by 55 they were off and by <laughs> 70 what were, what were these scots saying to you, <laughs> Did you Scottish actually you know what's cool uh i at the start line oh man i love i love moments i love uh when there's uh have you, are you familiar with the term big leaguing? No. Okay, so big leaguing is when... I've, I've, yeah, anyway, I love this term. <laughs> so big leaguing is when someone through what seems to be unintentional uh, behaviors lets you know that they're more important than you. <laughs> it's like if you and I met five times yeah. and then... We met, and then we saw each other at Cubaneo, and I was like, Brock, what's up? And you're like, have we met? <laughs> and to me, it's like super obvious. We've met five times. Right. I come up and say, not just like, hey, how's it going, man? But like familiar introduction, yeah. and you say, who are you? That's big leaguing. Yeah. Uh, so I was at the start of... Uh, but Okay, so I'm into this thing that's the opposite of big leaguing, right? Okay. So I was at the start line of West Highland Way, and this was unintentional, but I love what ended up happening. Uh, I heard... So everyone's speaking fucking Scottish, whatever language that is. <laughs> and uh, there's a dude, like a, like, a, like a bell through the junk that I... Whatever these people, however they sound. Yeah. Uh, I heard an American accent, and specifically a Pacific Northwest American accent. And I turned, who is here? Yeah, and this dude had a crowd of like five or six people around him, and you know how sometimes you can just kind of tell a celebrity, like a rock star, in yeah. a crowd, and like that guy carries himself differently. That dude has cultural significance. I saw this dude, and I saw people around him, and he just seemed taller than everybody in in a non physical way, and so I knew there was something going on. But I went over and was like, "You're American, huh?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Where are you from?" He said, "I'm from." I'm from uh, I'm from Oregon, and I, I said, "What's up, man? I'm from Seattle. I'm Chris." And he said, "I'm Hal," is in Hal Kerner, okay. who won Western States twice, okay. and is like the you know pre Tony Kaprichka most significant ultra runner in the world up until that point. Yeah, uh, I, I guess like post Jurek, pre Rob Carr, um, and I. had no idea who he was mm-hmm. but i kind of sensed that he was important because people were coming up to him but i was like what's up man i'm american how you doing <laughs> <laughs> he was like does this guy not know who i am <laughs> uh 
But anyway, I you know nothing whatever he he DNF no big deal. But <laughs> and I didn't. But uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, what was I saying about that race? Yeah. So that was your darkest race. That was super dark. Yeah, it was. Uh, just the body broke down, and I had to keep pushing through it regardless. And I I quit. I um I told my mom and my friend who was there who was crewing me and the aid station volunteers I said hey I'm I'm done like cut my wristband please and they said regardless of whether you're dropping out right now you're gonna go into the medical tent you're gonna take a nap for about an hour like you're clearly fucked up you're shaking like you're hypothermic and it's not cold out right um like you're shutting down it's not like you you Regardless of whether you are continuing, we're pulling you right now to take a nap. You need to take a nap. Medically mandated hour nap. Yeah. We're going to wake you up in an hour. I'm not cutting your wristband now. Yeah. I'll cut it in an hour if you still want it cut. Yeah. So they put me in the medical tent. I slept for an hour just like shivering, pouring sweat under a sheet. Just fever. Yeah. And uh, I got up and... uh, they basically just like push me out of there. All right, just keep going. They're like, you have the power. <laughs> you have the power. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I. Uh, William Wallace. William Wallace showed up and came. Dude. No. What happened was. So even in those really really dark moments. You'll get like. You'll get a couple of good moments. You'll get. It'll just be dark for hours and hours and hours. And then you'll get like five minutes there, okay. And then you go back dark again. Yeah. And you have these just little quick breathers wherever you come up and your endorphins are, are you know, they, you get serotonin again for just a second before you plunge down again. Yeah. And I woke up and my friend was with me and he was like, just walk a little bit, dude. And he started playing, uh, he pulled out his phone. No, he, he just started telling me Louis C.K. jokes. <laughs> And I started laughing, and it was just oh, it was okay for a couple minutes. Yeah. And he was like, right, I'm going to turn back. I'll meet you at the next aid station. And by yeah. that point, we were like half a mile out of the aid, and I was committed. Just had to go to the next one. And, uh, yeah, so I basically got tricked into finishing that one. I was so sure I was quitting, and it was so bad, and I couldn't. I mean, I, I, I say I couldn't, but I, I physically did, but, like, I functionally couldn't walk for a week. Yeah. I was... I would, you know, paved sidewalk every hundred meters. I would have to find whether it was the ground or a bench somewhere to sit down for a while. Wow. My feet were just ruined. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there was another um, really dark one that was kind of a different context. Like I had reason to fear there because I'd never gone that far. I had reason to suspect maybe I can't go that far. I've never done it. Um, but then... Later that year, I did 100K, so I'd gone farther, but hopped in 100K and um, got like halfway through and my knees were just, I'd, I'd basically been injured after the 100 miler and so I was, my training was bad and I was, and everything was just jacked and I couldn't put in any good training and um, so I uh, I did this 100K with bad training and uh, halfway through body didn't want to go any farther and i was thinking to myself like fuck dude i I already i did this race last year like there is nothing incentivizing about going farther where was this 100k uh it's down in san diego Mm -hmm. cuyamaca it's called it's an amazing race i've had two horrible performances there 
But the first one I thought was okay. Turns out it wasn't that great. Second one, I was, you know, halfway through and it's like started falling apart and knew I wasn't going to do as well as last year. My body felt like it was breaking. I thought I was risking injury for the next few months to do something that I had already done right. in, a, in a race that wasn't that competitive yeah. where there was no prize money, just beating myself up for no reason. Right. And uh, again, I just got kind of kept getting talked into continuing. Mm-hmm. So I just, I don't know, I did it, and I was injured again for quite a while. <laughs> so that, I don't know, maybe they were both mistakes. I don't know, but I've still never DNF'd a race. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which That's is why I need to go to UTMB next year, because <laughs> the Americans need my help. <laughs> right. I'm not going to win. I'm not even going to do well, but <laughs> they need some dude who's not going to DNF. <laughs> right. So, all right, I know... Every other podcast you're on has obviously asked you about Western States. Um, For those that are not familiar with Western States, it's probably the most iconic 100-mile race here, at least in the U.S. It started as a horse race back in the day, and now it's just become kind of this legendary event that is a bucket list for every ultra runner just to even complete it. But for you, you not only have gotten into that, but you've been extremely competitive, so Talk to us about what the Western States has meant to you and, and just a little bit about your experience with that. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, that's a huge deal to the ultra running community. Um, in, I think, the same sense that uh, many people look up to the Boston Marathon. Uh, I always looked up to Western States. I knew about it from very young. Yeah. Uh, so it was always, because again, Scott Jarek, uh was one of my heroes. So I always knew i never didn't know what western states was yeah so i didn't know when i was going to do it but i knew i was um so i started putting in the lottery as soon as i could eventually got in um and just absolutely trained my ass off for it like took risks um like trained to a level that like i could reasonably expect that i would get overtraining syndrome or an injury or something, just pulled out all the stops and really went for it. Yeah. Um, and in a way that I hadn't really done for anything before, like I, again, like I've got this thing about doing too good for how qualified I'm, I am like that kid's running too far for how old he is. Right. Uh, I, like after I graduated college, this is kind of a tangent, but like after I graduated college, one thing that happened is I kind of made a point of every little road race that I hopped in, I would show up too hungover. <laughs> and part of that was like I I had in college run some amazing workouts hungover, and I kind of didn't believe that it was that bad for you. Right. Like you get to the start line and you're gonna you're gonna be fine. Like if yeah. you've had, like you got drunk last night. It, I had enough performances in that situation to think maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. But also part of it was if I did poorly, at least I could say I was hungover. And if I did well, I did well even with a hangover. Right. So I was setting myself up to, I was like sort of mitigating expectations. Mm-hmm. I was setting myself up to have an excuse if I did poorly and have like a like double down on how good I did if I did well. Right. But it wasn't a fair competition. Yeah. 
So, and that's, that's tradition for me. And it took me a long time to realize that, but like, I always was looking to be like that. I did well. And (laughs) I did well, despite the fact that, and Western States was the first, one of the first times, the first time really that it was like, no, I'm all eggs in this basket. Yeah. Six months. Yeah pure devotion to this thing yeah and how many times have you done it now just twice twice right yeah yeah so i went and spectated the year before i did it and um was down at the river which is a very emotionally intense place mm-hmm. like you see a lot of dark shit down there yeah um tell tell people that aren't familiar with the, the river uh yeah what, what that is it's 78 miles into the race uh and if you're in the near the front it's the hottest part of the course so uh there's uh, this is the american river uh yeah yeah one of the forks of the American River, um so it's uh I I've I've got some deep theory on like where you can see certain things in people yeah but um regardless of how things end up playing out like the river ends up being uh where shit gets real yeah um stuff can happen before there but like shit gets real without exception at the river. Um, and so if you're there watching, like it's hot, you've been out all day and these, and people come in or don't, yeah. uh, and like the lineup's always changing. Like you're expecting this person to come in and he just doesn't come in for six hours. Yeah. Whoa. Something happened. Yeah. Uh, in the last 15 miles and then people come in and, and they're just like, some people are, um, like euphoric and, and clearly on some sort of, uh, weird, uh, euphoric high mm-hmm. and some people come in and, and they're just not there yeah but you're seeing you're seeing non-human types come into that place and so it's really intense to watch but i remember sitting there watching everyone come through and seeing 10th place male come through and just and I asked jesse haynes i remember uh i just remember seeing that just watching the flow of guys come through and just thinking I can be top 10. Mm-hmm. I had no reason to think that. Yeah. I just remember thinking, yeah, I can do that. Because top 10 at Western States is like gold standard. That's the equivalent oh, yeah. of college All-American. 100%. It's not winning anything, but it's like you're in the fucking club yeah. if you're top 10 at Western States. Yep. So I remember the year before I ran it, being at that, the crux moment of the race, and seeing those guys come through and thinking, I'm one of that group. Yeah. And I'd never done that before. I'd never been, I'd never called my shot like that. Yeah. I'd always been the, like, I'll be the outsider and then maybe I'll sneak in and be impressive because I snuck in. Yeah. And it was kind of scary. Just like, all right, I'm really going to invest emotionally in this. And if it goes poorly, it's going to really, really hurt. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I just worked my ass off for it and it <laughs> worked out. <laughs> So I, I, the first year I ran it, I, uh, my strategy wasn't very good and I ended up suffering quite a bit, but I just barely held on to 10th place. Um, and the hard part about that was that since it was such a grind and since the struggle, um, was so intense on race day, like really bad stuff can happen to your brain during a hundred miler. And by the end of this race, like I, I basically bonked. Like I'd gone hypoglycemic at about mile 74, 70, somewhere around there. 
And I ran the last marathon plus with like suboptimal blood sugar was like kind of blacking out my, my hearing and my vision were off and I was like taking in food cause I kind of could, but I was just, I was not right for the, the last quarter of the race. Yeah. Just trying as hard as I could to keep moving. And I, it just barely, barely worked. But by the end of it, I crossed the line and I didn't care at all because I didn't have anything left in my brain. Yeah. Like excitement is brain chemicals and I didn't have any left. Yeah. So I crossed the line and this thing that I've been working for for so long just felt like nothing to me. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm done. All right. (laughs) And then after those things, you can, you're still, you, you end up sometimes, not always, but it's possible and it's happened to me to get just depleted. Yeah. For a long period of time. So yeah. like hormonally, you can just be off for so long. And like theoretically, I really, really uh, appreciate what happened and, and I'm super proud of it, but I never felt it. Mm. I never felt excited about it. Yeah. Because by the time I had like enough serotonin to possibly feel the emotion of excitement was like months later. Yeah. And I wow. was like, all right, well, that's past tense. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the, it was this weird awkward anticlimactic thing uh but i that's kind of the whole thing right it's type two fun right you feel it you're, you're you're excited about it later i mean that that picture that i remember seeing of you it's just like you talk about the human spirit you talk about like triumph or whatever you want to call it i mean it's just insane um and then the second year that you did it mm-hmm. how was that experience uh kind of was it easier in any way substantially easier yeah um on the one hand i kind of removed expectations for myself i did feel an obligation to run hard and not just take it as like a victory lap um but uh i also i remembered how horrible it was like the aesthetic experience of running it year one was really awful Um, And I wanted, my first priority was to feel good doing it. Yeah. Um, So I, my strategy was different. I wanted to wait until later to start pushing. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I made it a a priority to get to the river uh, feeling fresh, which is, I had come into the river personally, like not recognizing my own family. (laughs) So I like it was So that was a big change. Big change. So I um yeah, I came into it uh just wanting to feel good as long as I could. And and I had experience with that in a hundred mile at that point. Like I knew that you could do the whole thing feeling okay. Yeah. And I really wanted to do that. Um, especially knowing that my training hadn't been optimal because of the restaurant opening and like you know, with some some extra course knowledge I could be strategic about this and actually, you know potentially hopefully have a positive experience out there yeah and um i did i uh got to yeah i just i hit all my checkpoints in the right mental space um i still made some mistakes but i got uh really deep into the race and still felt really amazing and was super motivated even in the last like 10 miles i was just hammering i had a lot left and at the end, I, I mean, I, I closed in like a dead sprint. I had so much left. I was so excited. Wow. Um, and it wasn't, I'm, I'm lucky that 
10th place, that like last super meaningful position was so far ahead of me that I, there's no way that I could have, even with like a perfectly strategized race, I couldn't have gotten it. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it was really cool to just do the thing and be able to kind of take it in rather than just focusing on trying to perform well. And you were, you were well in the top 20, was it 14th? I was 13th this year. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was a incredibly stacked field. Yeah, this there's no other year um, ever when the when my time wouldn't be top ten. Right. The vast majority of years, my time would be top five. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. No, it was insane. These are the best runners in the world. It's the sport's getting crazy. Yeah. Which is cool. Like, I mean, again, I come from college background. Like, I know what good runners look like. Yeah. And part of getting into ultra running was like. I didn't I didn't improve that dramatically as a runner. I got into a field of people who were limited. Like I know I ran against Galen Rupp like when I was very small, but I know what like D1 caliber future Olympian caliber runners look like. Yeah. And there's not that many of them yeah. in the ultra running world. Yeah. It's still really niche. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm that I, I think I am better at this than I am at the shorter distance stuff, but not by that much. Like I am a nobody in the five K, ten K world. And it's not that I'm that much better at this. It's it's mostly that not that many people are doing it. <laughs> I am better at it, but uh yeah, I mean it's I still have no illusions that I'm, you know, like actually a superior type athlete. There's it's just it's just so such an, such an obscure thing, but the cool thing is we are starting to see like some legitimately world class type athletes get into it. Like Matt Daniels is a sub four miler, and he's running ultras now. Like now we have a real guy who's a really fast runner, yeah. and now he's doing our sport. Yeah, let's see what happens. Yeah, even Jim Walmsley, like in terms of. Like Olympic style running, five k, ten k, cross country, he's good, not great, right? And he's top of the world in what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. So there's yeah. there's a lot of room for improvement. Yeah. In terms of like natural talent getting into our sport. Yeah. A lot of room for improvement. It'd be really fascinating to see where the next ten years go with mm-hmm. this. Really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Do you think it'll ever be an Olympic sport? Uh, maybe I don't see why not. I think it might take some. Isn't cross country an Olympic sport? Is it? I don't even know. I don't know either. I know rock climbing is an Olympic sport this year. There's so many running events. I don't think it would be. Yeah. I think they add sports for commercial appeal at this point. So damn boring. They're like, yep, they're still out there, folks. (laughs) Yeah, although coverage is pretty interesting at this point. Yeah. Like if We've you got watch drones and everything now, <laughs> UTMB coverage is amazing. Right. The coverage at Sierra Zanal was so cool. Uh, I mean, it, it's all basically like repurposed Tour de France style coverage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have to condense it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it could be, but. Uh, yeah, why not? Sure, it'll be an Olympic sport. Yeah. People, do you yeah. think hundred miler or do you think fifty miler or fifty k? You never know. Probably not fifty k. 
you never know where they'll start. Yeah. I think 100 Mile would be cool. 100 Mile Mountain Race. 100 Mile would be really cool. Really, really cool. Well, they've got race walking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? That, I remember when people thought snowboarding was out of the question, and, and now that's just so normal. So Yeah, it still seems out of the question to me. That's absurd that that's in the Olympics. <laughs> Dude, the original Olympics, you know, like, Olympics number one, what was it, uh, 496 B.C.? Something like that. Uh, one event. The Stod. Roughly 200 meters. Oh, wow. Yeah, one length of a stadium. It was like a horse track stadium. One length of the stadium. Wow. It's almost like... Um, well, a horse track is a different length than a running track, obviously. So I think it was basically... I think it's one straightaway, but that's 200 meters in a horse track. Or 230 or something, whatever it is. But yeah, there's one event to start... And then they started throwing in... So it was the Stod was the first event, and then they did many years of that, I think, and then there was the Double Stod. Wow. And then and then they started throwing in, like, throwing events and yeah, that stuff. What are you most excited for this next year? Uh, in, in, anything in life. It doesn't have to be running. Just anything in life. Um... Hopefully figuring out some balance. I'm really worried about, uh, it seems like the number of things that I've committed to right now are unsustainable. And yet I'm still just not saying no. And so either one or more of the things that I'm doing, I'm going to fail at and they'll, I mean, maybe I'll get kicked out of the restaurant. I don't know. Cause I'm not doing a good job or maybe I will start performing so poorly as a runner that I'll get cut by Hoka uh, so maybe I'll get cut from something in the way that frees up space in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's weird because on paper, all the things that I'm committed to right now, uh, are more than I'm capable of doing. And yet I just keep not saying no yet. I don't know. It's going to be a weird, it's been a weird year and it's going to be a weird another one I'm resolved to. So I do hope I find some more balance, though. It's been pretty messy lately. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's not super unhealthy, and uh, it'll make for good stories later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. For, I've got two more questions. Okay. And we'll wrap this up. For people that want to develop... I guess more mental toughness to be able to kind of expand their horizons of what's actually possible. What piece of advice would you give to them? Uh, I was talking to my housemate about this earlier today. He's, um, I mean, he's a, a real tough dude inherently. He's a pretty much non-runner who's just dabbled in ultramarathon running super casually, like runs pretty much not at all and just uh, last or about a year, maybe two years ago, went and did the John Muir Trail, which is 200 plus miles. Wow. He just averaged 40 to 50 miles a day for five days. Wow. Just off the couch. Oh my God. And then last weekend, again, off the couch, just went and did a one day effort on the High Sierra Trail, which is like 70 miles, which starts by going up Mount Whitney. Okay. So he's, he's a, he, 
he's a, I mean, he's in kind of deeply a badass. You know, yeah. he's got what it takes, obviously, but he's not a runner. Um, but he's signed up for his first hundred miler. And so obviously, like, there's room for me to go in there and give him a little bit of advice, even though right. he's, he's certainly got the mental equipment to make it happen. Yeah. But I can make it easier for him. So I'm yeah. trying to help a little bit. And one of the things that I told him to do uh, is this workout that I do around here, um, which is three reps on Tunnel Trail. Tunnel oh, Trail is the hardest trail, the hardest major trail in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Super steep, super inconsistent, very technical. Um, Hot. It's probably the most exposed trail in Santa Barbara, so yeah. it ends up being super hot. Yeah. It's gnarly. Yeah. It's, it happens to be a little shorter than most of the other ones, so it's got that going for it. Um, but if you're talking like, if you ask a runner in Santa Barbara, which trail do you dread? Oh. Tunnel's number one on everybody's list. Always. So I'll go, I, in preparation for most of my major races, will do triple tunnel at least once. And so from from the base where the concrete turns to dirt all the way to the top to Cielo to, to the road three times. Yep. Oh my god. And just how much how much for? Uh, probably. 6, yeah, probably a little over two thousand each rep. Wow. In three miles, yeah. three and a half miles. Unbelievable. It's uh, but the thing is, like, it's so technical that you go really slow. You have to. It takes so long that you end up going slow. You're probably power hiking a lot of it. And you have so much technical downhill between each rep that you're pretty much fully recovered between each one. Do you actually power hike any of it, though? No. (laughs) (laughs) But you you might as well be. That last mile, maybe. No, the last mile is not the worst. The first mile is the worst. But the the point is not that, (laughs) that it's a hard run. The point is that when you're halfway up the first rep, you think to yourself... What have I done? Because you're halfway up the first rep and you're like, this is taking so long. Yeah. And you get to the top and you're exhausted and then you start going down. You're like, I've been out here forever. I'm halfway down on my first rep. And the mental mental strength it takes to commit to doing the second rep is huge. Yeah. And then to do it again for the third – just to to know that you to go into it and think I'm gonna be out here for six hours is one thing, but to oh. get into it and work hard within the first ten minutes, yeah, and look down at your watch and see that no time has passed, yeah, and to know that you what you have in front of you and just to keep mentally committing to it, yeah, is is big time, yeah. So that's a I think a workout that would really help a lot of people is like. Fuck the view, dude. The view's not going to get you through that much. <laughs> like, you can go on your beautiful runs and whatever, but, yeah, yeah. like, if you can take a run with a... Sh- I mean, Tunnel has a great view, but if you can take a run that has a shitty view and just take the hardest hill you've got yeah. and just commit to doing it for six hours. Oh like, you're on a, a boring route yeah. for an insurmountable amount of time, and yeah. you just commit to doing it. The mental strength you build by just doing by doing that, even just like one or two times, is huge. So basically, what you're what you're saying is do some really, really, really hard shit to mentally toughen you up. Uh, 
but not necessarily physically hard <laughs> stuff because again you get so much rest on the way down right that the third rep ends up being almost indistinguishable from the first okay it's it's doing something that requires mental commitment uh-huh. it's doing something that requires you to keep choosing to continue like something that's not a loop something that's not a point to point something yeah. that is boring repeats but that you commit to doing for six hours so that when you're four hours in, you have to consciously decide again. Yeah. That is really good for you. Yeah. For an ultra runner. Yeah. Because you, late in a race, you're going to get to an aid station and it's going to be a place where it's possible to quit. Right. And to, to, to eliminate that as an option, to be in that position, to have put yourself in that position before where things were uncomfortable, but you didn't give yourself the option to, to bail. Yeah. You got to practice that. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I think that's, that's a big one. It's not necessarily the difficult, the difficulty of the workout. It's the, uh, it's the giving yourself, putting yourself in a position where you could quit and practicing not quitting. Yeah. Yeah. It's great advice. Great advice for anything in life. Yeah, well, I don't know, man. Like, I find that ultra running doesn't necessarily apply to stuff like jobs, you know? Because the difference between not quitting when you're in like a four to six hour to 16 hour workout or race is super different from doing week after week after week of something really challenging. Yeah. I think it's really different. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think a lot of lessons from this session. And I think this is officially our longest podcast. And oh, you'll edit it. I'm stoked about it. Um, there's there's gems in all of this. Um, what is the best place for people to find you and say hello and get in touch? Oh, I don't recommend it, but... <laughs> I know you're not even on Facebook, right? I'm not. I'm trying to get off of Instagram. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get off. I, I don't know if it's totally possible, but I'm working on it. Simplifying all. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm reachable. Uh, if you, if you're able to, if you're able to Google me and find me and figure out a way to send me a message on any platform, then I will absolutely respond enthusiastically. But, uh, I think it's, I think it's bad for you and, uh, I don't recommend it. Oh, oh, all right. Beer down. Well, yeah, I think this podcast is over. We just spilled we spilled beer on the couch. Sorry, Shannon. I will clean this up. All right. Well, folks, thank you so much for listening. I will have links to all the show notes. Um, we'll have links to Chris's Instagram for as long as he's on it. And I hope you guys have pulled as much from this session as I have. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you guys on the next episode. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. It was always uh, a pleasure to do a live recording and Chris literally lives in my neighborhood. So that was super convenient and super fun. So did you guys get a lot out of that? I know I did. I think there was some gems throughout the entire episode. And I think what blows my mind about Chris is just strictly his mental toughness. And I think my biggest takeaway personally was our ability to make this quantum leap into what is possible. And I think 
think so often we just don't know what is truly possible until we expand those limits and those boundaries. And Chris is a great example of someone who has done that in his life. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with other people. Please go ahead and post it. Please give it a listen. And thank you so much for watching for listening rather. (laughs) Sorry, that's the IPA talking. I don't know how much sense I'm making. (laughs) Have a wonderful day, you guys, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Brock Cannon Podcast. (music) Thank <music> you.